we conclude our study of the omnipotence of God by asking this question. What do we know about the origin of man's ability to limit the omnipotence of God in the moral realm from the Bible? In Genesis 3.22, we have this significant text. Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. In our study of the many Bible passages on the omnipotence of God, we have come to the following observations, which we do well to review. First, God has revealed himself to man in the words, I am the Almighty God. The power of the Godhead could not be greater. Any limitations that appear are not defects or deficiencies, but either natural or self-imposed, as we shall develop further. Secondly, the abounding omnipotence of God is established before all men in the boundless energy bestowed in the creation of the vast universe and of moral creatures, and in sustaining the whole in such precise operation. Thirdly, that notwithstanding God's greatness, there are constitutional limitations imposed upon his omnipotence in that even God cannot perform natural impossibilities, cannot do things contrary to his own nature or moral character, nor has he chosen by his own free will to do all that he is able to do. Fourthly, that strange as it may seem when mere man is compared to the incomprehensible greatness of God, man has and continues to limit the omnipotence of God in that his moral actions cannot be compelled by force from without his own being. Man's rebellion has caused untold disappointment and immeasurable grief to God, has persisted in the history of the world in spite of God's wisdom and resources, and has violated and been contrary to God's revealed will for the world of men. We now hasten to inquire as to how this dreadful state of affairs could arise in view of the revealed and manifested omnipotence of God. The will of God is not being done. This is everywhere apparent from the Bible and from observation. How are we to reconcile this fact to the concept of the sovereignty of God, which all men believe that God possesses and which the Bible so declares? This is our present consideration. What solution does the Bible offer? In the first place, we may say that God, being God, is free to impose upon himself certain limitations. If these limitations are not contrary to his moral nature with his perfections of goodness, intelligence, and wisdom. Indeed, no other being may impose limitations upon God apart from God's choice to enter into such a state of affairs that involves this possibility. Secondly, the great perfections of the universe, with all its mysteries and precisions, could not be the ultimate aim in creation. These things are great and revealing, but there is something far greater. God's abilities could be manifested, but there would be nothing to respond to his affections, 
nothing to appreciate his love nor evaluate his goodness. Concerning the materialistic creation, we read several times in the book of Genesis. Chapter 1, verse 10, for example, God saw that it was good. But the good things wisely created could not give worship and adoration in return. As we read in Psalm 19.1 concerning the handiwork of God as follows, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. This handiwork was indeed glorious, but the possibility of personal reaction was completely lacking. Thirdly, we may say that our study so far of the functions of God has been limited to his natural attributes, the eternity of God, the omnipresence of God, the omniscience of God, and the omnipotence of God. As valuable and as great as these are, the most wonderful and awe-striking characteristics of the Godhead are the moral attributes, or those describing the purposeful goodness and faithfulness of God. True virtue or holiness is more important than intelligence and power, since it is the foundation of all activity. The materialistic creation could stand as a monument of God's greatness, but does not possess the ability to add virtuous action to the universe. It was natural, therefore, that the supreme depths of God's being should call forth his efforts to bring into existence an order of beings who would possess the endowment of personality or be capable of virtuous action to add to the good and blessing in the moral realm. In the fourth place, we may say that such an order of beings could only be made after one pattern, the image of God. All the works that God had made sprang from the creative thought of God. But now we must have essentially a duplication of God's characteristics. God must fashion small personalities in the likeness of his great personality. Man's inner nature was not to be something new, but a tiny replica of what had existed from eternity in the great being of the Godhead. It should be plainly obvious that the creation of such personal replicas could only result in one thing, limitation of the direct sovereignty and omnipotence of God. The extent of this limitation would depend, of course, upon the magnitude or size of the personalities created but image, apart from limitation, is impossible. If man is to function, he must have a domain or a sphere of power given to him. If he has no sphere of activity, he cannot function as a personality. If he has, God would have to yield over a tiny portion of his great sphere to each such creature sent forth with teeming life upon the sea of time. God has parceled out to man, therefore, a portion of his sovereignty. It is true 
that God cannot but retain his overall sovereignty by virtue of his greatness. He can assert his direct sovereignty at any time by the termination of man's existence. But as long as man is allowed to exist and function as a personality in his limited sphere, God's direct sovereignty must be limited to this extent. The fifth thought that we would bring forth is this. The idea of a controlled free will is an absurdity. They are antitheses. They are antagonistic and cannot coexist. It is like talking about the freedom of a railroad train to go in any direction with its pattern of trackage laid out before it. If free will is to mean anything, it must be able to chart its own course, make up its own mind, choose between alternatives. If one course alone must be taken, free choice disappears. There is no fork in the road in a given instance. No this or that. Hence, no call for creative exertion, no decision to be made. If this assumption be true, that free wills can be controlled in the absolute sense. Most obvious, therefore, if such moral free beings are to be created in the image of God, they cannot be controlled directly by force or any other means. Hence, a new system of management must be devised based on new principles. It cannot be the simple cause and effect of the materialistic universe. There we have the simple addict provide an adequate cause, and the result always follows. Its characteristics are certainty and definiteness. The result will always follow when the cause has been brought into being. But in the moral realm, a more complex system must be devised. It has been called moral government, or the uh, guidance of moral beings in consistency with their moral freedom. It must be on the basis of reward and punishment. If man does this, God must do that, and so forth. If man conforms voluntarily with the holy and righteous and wise will of God, God can and will reward him with blessings and joys untold. But on the other hand, if man refuses and acts contrary to his own intelligence and welfare and also to that of God, God has no alternative but to reward him accordingly with discomfitures and punishment. It is the appeal to motivation rather than a constraint by force. If there is omnipotence, there is no may or may not. If there is a may or may not of true freedom, the outcome is not directly controllable. Thus we see some of the important features that make possible the entrance of sin and disappointment into God's beautiful world and universe. But we must continue in our next meeting, may we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee for the thoughts Thou hast given us through the reading of Thy Word. 
and that thou hast taken the pains to reveal to us these wondrous truths concerning thyself and concerning the whole state of affairs that so often perplex us. We thank thee for the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for the sins of the whole world, that man of his own voluntary choice may repent of sin, exercise living faith in Christ as Savior, be forgiven thereby, and enter back into that glorious relationship which thou hast planned for man, continuing through this life and into the glorious life to come that thou hast prepared for those that love thee and are willing to be in submission to thee. May many do so this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.